I have done adventures on rivers. I have done urban adventures. I love the unknown and adventure. My definition of adventure is certain uncertainty. Welcome to the Travel Stories Podcast, where we bring you immersive, inspiring, and international travel stories of freedom and adventure from travelers around the world. Here is your host, Hayden Lee. Adventure. Some people dream of it. Some people yearn for it. Others go out there, find it, and take it. Now, adventure is such a big part of our lives that there's even a form of travel dedicated to it. Adventure travel. Now, this could be climbing a mountain. This could be whitewater rafting. This could be staying alone in the desert. It doesn't matter what it is. It is your own interpretation of adventure. Why is adventure so important to us? Why does it mean so much? Why do we all want to go out there and grab it? Is it because our lives are so monotonous without this adventure, potentially? Is it because when you're on that adventure, anything could go wrong at any point and it's that tightrope walk that really allows you to feel like you're living? Could be. Is it the challenge to yourself, knowing that you may not make it to the top, you may not make it to the bottom, you don't know what's going to happen, and you want to challenge yourself to beat your previous self, to beat the next guy, the last guy, the other guy, the guy that's with you. You want to top that and you want to find out what you can really do. It may very well be. Our guest for today is Evan Hansen, and he brings with him one of my favorite stories thus far. Evan is 64 years old, and unlike Paul McCartney, he's not asking, will you still need me, and will you still feed me? He's going out there and getting stuff done. He's lived the lives of at least seven men. And he continues to this very day. Now, this was such an interesting interview to do. Evan has gained so much wisdom over his years of traveling. And he's here not only to make myself and everyone else feel lazy, but he will bring us some of that wisdom too. So let's dive in. You're listening to the Travel Stories Podcast. And this is Evan Hansen. Evan, how's it going? Very well, very well. Awesome, awesome. I'm glad, again, I say this every time, but I'm glad I'm not the only person saying very well to that, not very good to that, because I always sound kind of weird when I say very well, you know? (laughs) But I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) One of my other retorts is when people ask, uh, how am I doing? I say, I'm happy. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Like, it's it's, that's something I do too. I always say, I use the word awesome. How's it going? I'm awesome, always awesome, because who was it that was saying about it? I remember someone, oh, it was from this other podcast, and he uh, he was going, he was had like depression, and he was really having a really bad time, and he thought, I'm going to change this around. Every time someone asks me how I am, I'm going to say, I'm doing great, I'm doing awesome. Then after a while, he began to believe it. He began to think, well, yeah, I am doing great, because people would ask why. They'd say, why are you doing great? And he would say, well, I've got a roof over my head, I've got this, this is going great. And he would begin to understand why his life is going well, and he began to to believe it, you know? Well, the answer of I'm happy uh, opens up conversations like you can't imagine rather than I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Here in England, it's uh, it, the popular retort is not too bad, which for me is like, yeah, I'm bad, obviously, but not too bad. <laughs> I love that. 
but it's fun. You often see it while you're traveling. You the the question "How are you?" Uh, obviously mm-hmm. comes up when you meet someone when you're traveling. You go, "Hey, you know, what's your name?" I'm Jim. How are you, Jim? And then from that question, you can really get a lot of their story if they're open to it, if they're vulnerable to to answering the question, and you can get a lot of their story just from that one answer. You know, I'll give you a, I'll give you a good hint that I have learned to do is ask somebody how they're not. Oh <laughs> yes! Oh, I'm going to start. Talk about it. Talk about a head spinner. <laughs> yeah. How are you not? Well, I'm not sad. Yeah, that really works. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It gets you off on a different track nicely. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, me and Evan were talking just before the call, and he mentioned something which I found amazing. So, he's been traveling since his twenties, and you are now how old, Evan? I'm sixty-four. Sixty. That's man. That is a long time. Yes. Sorry to make you feel old, right? No, 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 no. I think you're as old as you are. I climbed uh, a pretty strenuous mountain two weeks ago, so at 64. <laughs> nice. That is. That wasn't in the Beatles song. When I'm 64, I'm going to climb a mountain. But, <laughs> but you know, it still works. <laughs> That's awesome. So, what makes you? Uh, what makes you still do these things? Is it still that sense of adventure? Or is it the sense of accomplishment? Or why do you? Why do you travel? Why do you get yourselves into get yourself into these predicaments of climbing a mountain, for example? Well, I love to go to new places. I'm a consummate explorer and, uh, you know, climbing mountains. I probably in my lifetime have climbed in excess of 500 mountains. And, uh, that's a conservative estimate. There's something about standing on a summit where so few people in the world do that. And then just the process of getting to that summit, either by yourself or with other people. And that's just one aspect of it. Um, I have done adventures on rivers. I have done uh, urban adventures. I love the unknown and adventure. My definition of adventure is certain uncertainty. Mm, I love that. Certain uncertainty. I'm adding that to the list of things that I have to remember to tell people everywhere I go. Certain mm-hmm. uncertainty. I like that. So adventure is kind of seems like the key to your travel. It's it doesn't sound like you'd you'd much fancy going to a hotel and, you know, sitting by the by the beach and by the pool and having a margarita and, and checking that out. Uh, in my when I was younger, I would do um a lot more technical mountains. Uh, like uh, the first mountain I climbed was Mount Rainier. Out and did a technical ap- approach with some friends. Uh, that's another story of being trapped on the summit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've done the Tetons, which is another technical one, the Matterhorn. And uh, I've done a lot of just long hikes, uh, like Kilimanjaro is just a 75-mile hike, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so just not mountaineering is just one aspect of it. I do that in the summertime. I'm a, a backcountry skier. And uh, so I love to cross-country ski with a backpack on. Wherever I am in the world, there's something adventurous to do. Mm. I wouldn't say I'm addicted to adventure. I'm, I'm pretty balanced at this point in my life. But adventure has to be part of my life. And uh, there's so many new things that I've never done before. And heck, someone gives me a chance to do them. I'll probably give them a try. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Saying yes to the opportunities that arise so that you can then go and have the adventure. Because what is an adventure if you don't say yes to it initially, you know? That's right. That's it. And I think a lot of these things kind of come into our lives where it's something that we, like you say, we have to do. Uh, we Well, we don't have to, but it... 
it makes our life kind of more livable in a good way. I don't mm-hmm. mean in a bad mm-hmm. way, but but like for you, adventuring. For other people, it could be going into mysterious places, not so much as an adventure, but just to go live and see how people are living there. For some people, it's music. For some people, it's other things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that for you, it's adventure. Would you be able to? Would you be able to pinpoint why that is? Um, you know, if anything came up in your life and then suddenly maybe it was your first adventure. What do you What do you think? Well, I, I think as far back as I can think, Hayden, even as a little boy, whether I was down in the creek trying to catch bullfrogs or to- pollywogs, uh, um, it was just a new new opportunity to do something that required you to use all of your senses, your skills, and then I just expanded that to the world. And I've gotten to travel around the world and do adventures a lot of places. And uh, probably the only limiting factor for me is, you know, time or money. Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's always the limiting factors, always. <laughs> so do yeah. you see Do you see an end to the, do you have an end point in mind with the adventures? Oh, absolutely not. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't uh, think so. M- my goal is to be able to climb a mountain when I'm 70. And I don't need to do Everest, but just to, it, there are reasons to stay physically fit to try new things. Um, I have a bucket list that's full of adventures that shouldn't surprise you. Mm-hmm. And one, uh, the top on my bucket list is to fly an ultralight coast to coast uh, in the United States. And uh, only do it in rural areas and do a blog about it, meet people, and then park it and fly it back another direction the next year. So that's something out there that I put out there. So I have a quite a um, dynamic adventure bucket list Mm, nice man you have to keep in touch and you have to tell us when you're doing that because i fully believe that that will happen (laughs) having talked to you for this long i fully believe that that will happen in the next Mm -hmm. five ten years something like that that's right oh probably less than that it's a i I have an idea i'm already a a ultralight pilot that's one of the other adventures that i learned Uh, and uh, so now i'm just waiting for the right season to uh, pick that back up again, and then it's going to take me probably three weeks to do it one way and three weeks back. But yeah, you got to shoot. You know, if you shoot at nothing, you'll hit it every time. <laughs> yes, absolutely, man. So, like with adventure, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, "Man, I want to climb five hundred mountains. I want to go and fly an ultralight. I want to do all these things." There's obviously the the advice of just go out and do it, and there's also the advice of say yes to everything that comes up. But is there anything else that you would you would have as a piece of advice to to start adventuring? Is it a mindset thing? What are your thoughts? I think it's a, for me, I got in a lot of trouble when I was young because I had no sense of balance. Hmm. And I would just go from adventure to venture to venture. I'm married and, and that caused some marital discord uh, because I would choose adventure over relationship. And so balance and then I think prudence. Uh, the, there are a lot of adventurous people who are dead. And uh, because they keep pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope, and pretty soon the envelope eats them. Mm. And uh, and so for me, it's to get the appropriate sort of training, not just just simply jump into something and you know hope you land on your feet like a cat, but do some research and uh, get the proper equipment. And, uh, and so adventure in my world has three parts to it. One is the concept or the idea. And that's all the preparation that's necessary. Then you go out and do it, and then you retell the stories. And so those are the three parts to adventure. 
Yes, yes. I really like how that's compartmentalized in those three parts. And I think they're, would you say they're equally as important as each other? Because going out and telling the story of adventure, surely that brings new adventurers and new adventures as well. And then uh, obviously the first part as well, you were saying about getting all the correct information, researching what to do and how to adventure and how to uh, how to do these things that you want to do. That is, like you say, very important because if you go out there and you skip the first step, then it's very unlikely that you'll be able to complete the second and therefore the third as well. If you miss the third step, then you may not be influencing people to then go and complete the first. It's all that's. I like the way that it's all kind of intermingled into one. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, when people find out you're an adventurer, um, they lead you to other things. Have you heard about this? Have you done that? Um, that's how I found you. Oh yeah. That's exactly how I found you. So I was hunting in the podcast and it said something about adventure stories. Like I'm all over that. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> I'm glad we're. Uh, I'm glad we're bringing it for you. That's great. <laughs> I love it. So we were talking uh, as well before the interview, and you mentioned uh, just in passing because <laughs> your life seems like one of those one of those things where even the things you mention in passing are incredibly interesting. <laughs> it's like, mm. oh yeah, so I lived in the Middle East for five years, and then after that, and it's like, hold on, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> you know so man tell me the story about that what what brought you to the middle east well when i was in my 20s i uh, discovered a survival training instructor uh, job in the united states air force and uh, so for four years i uh, trained air crew members uh, in the united states and in alaska in arctic survival and uh then I went off to college, and while I was in college, I was recruited by a pretty small fraternity of survival instructors, and they said, hey, we've got a job for you, uh, and it's uh, tax-free, and at that time, it was a stupendous amount of money. And I said, what are we doing in Saudi Arabia teaching Saudis how to survive in their desert? Mm-hmm. And I thought, tell me more. So they told me more, and I uh, end up accepting that position uh, and was there for nearly five years. And living in that part of the world was nonstop adventure. Mm. And uh, because it's a, it was a closed country, and so it was rife with history, but no one had ever explored it. So we'd look up old maps and get a four-wheel drive and go see if we could find it. And so whether you're climbing mountains, which they have, or diving, or taking a four-wheel drive across country, oh my goodness, I was in heaven. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect perfect thing for you, really. It's like, here is a country that is full of all these adventures that maybe some people have never even done before. And you could be the first person to do these ridiculous adventures. Do you want to (laughs) go? That sounds like the perfect job. Let me tell you a quick one here, a very quick one. Sure. Um, uh, slavery was legal in the Middle East until the early 60s. And uh, so the way they would get the, the, the slaves out of Africa, bring them up on a sailboat into the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, and then march them into the center of the, the country, not quite the center, there's an oasis. And so, of course, that was all changed, but then we found out and found a map. And so we retraced the, the trek from the ocean to the slave market, and that was across the desert. So we took a, that was before GPSs, we took a four-wheel drive and a compass and retraced that uh, track to the oasis. And that was amazing because we found the place where they would um, put their slaves and protect them from marauders. And that was still intact in the 80s. 
That's amazing, man. That's amazing. It's it really is one of those things where you can where you can see things that it's hard to explain. But when I was when I was away from this country, I'm in England at the moment. When I was away from here, the, what I missed about it was the history and so like the the castles and everything like that. And the reason isn't so much for the architecture and how beautiful they are, which they are, but it's the things that have happened there in the past and you're standing in the spot where you know this happened or something cool happened here and you're in that spot and you can kind of almost feel it where you are you can almost feel the situations that have happened in that spot and that is i always refer to it as the history of the location that you're in and mm-hmm. i really think you can feel it man what do you think Oh, absolutely. I'm thinking of a time that I got to sit in the chair that Teddy Roosevelt uh, sat at a dinner table in Kenya. And uh, I was sitting at this table, and there were these heads that were mounted inside this formal dining room, but they were all from North America. And mm-hmm. So I asked the owner, that, what's the deal with these uh, animals here? And he said, well, those were a gift to my father from Teddy Roosevelt, who sat exactly where he was sitting at one time when he came for safari. That's absolutely that crazy. Was pretty, that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. It's so weird how you can find yourself in those positions and, and mentally go back the tens, the hundreds, the, even the thousands of years. In, and it's still that exact same spot. And it kind of all comes, o- comes over you in, t- in this wave of, I'm in this spot where this thing happened. It's such a strange feeling, man. Such a strange mm-hmm. feeling. But it's it a feeling is. that I love. I absolutely love that. So, man, I really, really want to get onto your story because I know it's going to be great. <laughs> 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 from what you've said so far. So, man, where does your story take place? It takes place, it starts in, in Saudi Arabia, and it, en- and it ends in Saudi Arabia. But it doesn't, uh, it's basically, it's a story about two summits in seven days. That's the title of the story. Two summits in seven days. Well, that's pretty impressive already. <laughs> I'm loving it already. All right, brilliant. <laughs> Let's dive into this, man. I can't wait. You're listening to the Travel Stories Podcast, and this is Evan Hansen with Two Summits in Seven Days. Well, this story begins in uh, 1980 when I uh, took a job in Saudi Arabia as a desert survival instructor with an American corporation. And the men that came there and they were instructors were all young. They were full of adventure. We had lots of time off and now we had the means to travel. But we'd get together uh, often and talk about places in the world. And the subject came up once about the possibility of going and climbing the Matterhorn in Switzerland. The two other guys that I'll reference quite a bit is a guy named Jim who was from Paducah, Kentucky, and Ron who is from Tanzania, Africa. We were sitting around the lunch table and we were talking about, well, let's climb the Matterhorn. Jim had tried to climb the Matterhorn a couple times and got weathered off. Ron had never climbed the Matterhorn, but he had climbed Kilimanjaro and I had not climbed either of them. So there was an argument, which one should we climb? After arguing for a while, I said, why don't we just climb them both? And that began a pretty ambitious plan. Climb both mountains within 21 days. And they're in two different hemispheres, and we don't have an endless amount of time, but let's do it in 21 days. It's over the next six months, 
we got prepared to go on what I called an, an epic adventure. Now, the Matterhorn is its uh, elevation is uh, 14,342 feet. It's a technical climb. It requires ice axe, crampons, and ropes. Kilimanjaro, on the other hand, at 19,340 feet, is really a long 75 to 80 mile round trip hike. However, elevation is a serious issue there. And so I'm kind of a dreamer and I came up with this big idea. How can we get the people that we work with involved in our story and let them come along on this adventure with us? Well, let's just give this a name and call it the Matterhorn Kilimanjaro Expedition and see if they'd like to donate some money towards that. And in return, we'll take their name and put it in a small canister and bury it on each summit. And so our company got behind us and gave us quite a bit of money. Then we said, traveling. Oh my gosh, these tickets are going to cost close to $6,000 to do this. And so we approached a travel agency and asked them if they wanted us to help them advertise their travel agency through this expedition. And they said, oh, we'd love you to do that. And so they gave us 75% off our airfares. That was the beginning. And so finally, after training and buying equipment, and we're on our way to Switzerland. We traveled from Zurich to Zermatt, which was going to be our base camp. And we were in heaven. This is unbelievable. It was captivating to just come out the door and look, and there was the mountain saying, I'm ready for you. The next day, we put our climbing boots on and decided to go and get some elevation to get acclimated because, remember, we live at sea level. And so while we were up on the mountain, it snowed in July in Europe. Unbelievable. Nobody could believe it. A snowstorm in the end of July. And so that began for us two weeks, 14 days of waiting and waiting and waiting for the snow to melt off the Matterhorn. Now keep in mind, we only had 21 days and we waited 14 days. And we climbed as many small horns that did not have snow on them as possible to stay in shape and to get used to the elevation. The most unusual thing I've ever seen hiking in my life one day is at 12,000 feet meeting two nuns in complete habits hiking on the trail at 12,000 feet. That was surprising. After 14 days of waiting, we can climb. And so we're climbing a ridge called the Hornley Ridge. And you basically take a tram up to about 7,000 feet, hike up to a hut at 10,000 feet. We spent the night there and got up very early in the morning. And we had decided that we were not going to use a guide to climb the mountain. And away we go. One thing that struck us immediately about the Matterhorn are the shrines and plaques that are all over the mountain. And the very first rock climbing move that you make right out of camp, it said George Smith, I don't know what his name was, 
graduated from high school a week before and he fell here and he died. I'm not sure how many of those plaques we passed on our way to the summit. And on this mountain, our biggest danger is falling rocks. You can hear these rocks that have fallen because of the freeze-thaw, and they're at terminal velocity, and you can hear them coming before they even get close to you. And so you just fall on your face and, and hug the mountain and hope that your helmet will take the hit if it takes it. After about six hours of climbing, we finally stand on the summit. Now, the summit of the Matterhorn is quite narrow. There is a ridge you walk across. It's approximately 18 inches wide. On your left, as you're walking across it, is Italy. On your right is Switzerland. And if you lose your balance and go left, you're going to fall into Italy. And if you lose your balance to the right, you're falling into Switzerland. It's doubtful you'll survive those falls. So we take our photos bury the capsule with the names in it and head down. And that's where our next problem began. Jim didn't realize it, that he was terrified of descending. Because you would look down into these canyons that you're going down, and he just locked up. And as a result, it took us an exceptionally long time to get back to the hut. And as a result, we missed the tram to the bottom. Now, keep in mind, we have seven days left, and we can't sleep on the mountain. And we descended 9,000 feet all the way down to town. The next day, we didn't have time to sit around and recover. We had to get on a train and planes, and we were heading to Africa, Tanzania. And so we called at one of the stops, uh, Swiss Air, who had, had sponsored us and said, we're going to be late. And they said, how late? We said, ah, maybe 30, 40 minutes. And he said, we'll hold the airplane. That'll never happen today. So they held an airplane for us and off we went. When we arrived in Dar Salaam, Tanzania at night, we gathered our bags and discovered we now had a major problem. Our food bag was gone. That only left us with granola bars, a couple of tins of sardines and chocolate bars. No problem, we thought. We just go to the grocery store the next day. We did. Went down to the grocery store the next day and walked into a barren food pantry. And so we asked, why is there no food here? And they said, we're at war. Wow, what are we going to do? We have five days of climbing. We've got a couple of granola bars and a couple of tins of sardines. I don't think that's going to get it. So the other problem we have is we're out of cash. We thought, well, we'll just pop into Dar es Salaam, go down to the local bank and get some cash. They wouldn't do it. And as a result, all we had was 50 American dollars in our pocket to get us to the mountain and get us back. One man said, you might consider the black market. And so we went on the black market, and I don't know how much money we got for $50, but it was enough to get us to and from the mountain. That's all I know. And so the next morning, we get on the airplane, 
and we fly to Kilimanjaro International Airport. And so, as I said earlier, Kilimanjaro is about a 35-mile hike. We're at 5,000 feet approximately here, and we have to go to 19.6. And so we said we have to climb this quicker than normally is done. A normal climb is five days. And because we didn't have enough food, we said, we've got to do it fast. And so we decided not to hire a guide or a porter. And they said, nope, you can't do that. You can't go. You have to have at least a guide, and it will be this much money. And so we decided to sneak around the entrance and head off on our own. We got up the trail about an hour, and we sat down. He said, this is a bad idea. That's all we need to do is get thrown in jail because we broke some rules. And so we went back down and hired a guide. And so this young man named Peter, he comes up to us. And Peter's in shorts and flip-flops. And he says, I'm your guide. And he said, I have to go home and get some equipment and food. And so we were angry at that point at the government red tape and just said to Peter, Peter, you catch us. We're on our way. And so off we went to the first hut. Peter arrives. Now, Peter has got some climbing boots on with no socks. They're not laced up. And he's got a red trash sack on his head. And that's his backpack. And we said, wow, that's all you have? And he says, that's all I got. And so we were packing up. And he says, where are you going? And he said, we're going to Harumbo. And he went, no, 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 you can't do that. Why, Peter? Because there are leopards and there are other animals that come out at nighttime. This is not good. Peter, we're going. We hiked all the way to 12,500 from 5,000 feet that morning. The next morning, as the sun came up, we heard us knock at the door. And it was Peter. And he said, what are your plans? And he said, well, we're going to go to the summit today from 12,000 all the way to the top. And he goes, I am not feeling well. I cannot come. He said, well, we're going. He gets on the radio and he says, the young lions are coming. And so that's what we were known on the mountain those next days, the young lions. And so we made it to the hut, Kibo hut. And so the next morning, again, we don't have a lot of food. And so I decide to have a, a granola bar before we head to the summit. And as soon as I had a cup of tea and a granola bar, I began to feel ill. Little did I know that I was beginning to suffer from acute uh, mountain sickness. And so we began to ascend. And the higher we go, the sicker I become. And now I start to vomit. And after a while, I have nothing to vomit. But each time I sit down to rest, I go through these dry heaves. And so I tell the guys, I can't stop because I, I just can't go through that. But I thought all along towards last that I can't turn back. There's too much on the line. I may never get to this mountain again in my lifetime. I am going to make it to the summit. And so after, I think, six hours, I literally climbed 
on my hands and knees to the summit. I was so sick. And so after crawling literally to the summit and trying to hold my head up to take the pictures, we decided to descend right away. And I said, guys, I know how I'm going to get over this, and that is to lose elevation. So instead of going down the switchbacks, I ran straight down the mountain. And so I made it back to what they call the Hornley Hut, where we started that morning in a little over an hour. The guides brought me some tea, and I don't know what kind of food they brought me, but I sat down and ate that and promptly vomited it up. And I said, I have to descend further. I am still sick. And so from there to 16,500 feet, I descended as quickly as I could possibly go with my friends in tow. And somewhere around the 12,000 foot mark, it was as if I stepped through a doorway and I was sick on one side and well on the other. And I felt great and stopped that night at 12,000 feet. We did not sleep. We just continued to descend and we went all the way down to the bottom. Instead of climbing this mountain in five days, we climbed it in three and a half days. Snow, traveling, losing your food bag, getting sick, and still as young lions, as they called us, we were able to overcome all those things. And as I look back in my life, and I'm 60 now, if someone was to say, what's the biggest adventure you've ever done? It would be that one. And so those of you who are adventurers, be ambitious when you're planning, but plan well. And don't let obstacles deter you from reaching your goals and you will be successful. That was Evan Hansen with Two Summits in Seven Days. Evan, man, I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> I was just sitting here. I was taken away to Tanzania, and I was taken up the summits of mountains. Oh, man, that was ridiculous in such a good way. Well, thank you. Well, I hope that that works for you, man, honestly. Oh, man, that was amazing. Thank you very much. And one thing I was thinking um, whilst you were telling it was before the story, you mentioned the two kind of roadblocks to travel and adventure are always time and money. And what I love about your story is how you removed the money roadblock. So you, you, you didn't have enough money for the flights. You didn't have enough money for this. But you talked to the, the company, the travel agency. You put yourself out there and got it sorted. And this sort of... This sort of out-of-the-box thinking to get rid of these uh, these roadblocks, I don't call them problems, just roadblocks, this sort yes. of thinking is is ideal, I think, not just for travel, but for life itself. And I agree. Does, uh, does that type of problem solving, like, does it come easy to you? Is that something that's easily accessible to you, you know? Yes, it is. It comes very easy for me. And um, I do a lot of uh, traveling in the United States. And even though we all speak the same language here, there's a lot of cultures here. And so you're faced with figuring out a culture, figuring out how to get something done. And so I love problem solving like that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think there's always a way around. And like I say, it's not a problem. It's just a roadblock. And you can go around roadblocks. You know? Absolutely. 
Yeah, well, I figure if you can't go around it, you dig a hole under it. <laughs> That's exactly it, man. <laughs> That's exactly it. I was thinking if there's a detour, you can either plow through it or you can, uh, you know, bribe the police officer and get your way through that. <laughs> it always works, man. Always. <laughs> so, man, also what I was thinking is um, when you were saying, yeah, we'll do this and we'll climb this tomb, we'll do it in 21 days. And it seemed like, well, that was the challenge. And that was the, you know, can it be done? This is what we're going to do. This is the goal. And so when it comes to adventure, and well, you're the guy to ask when it comes to adventure, but how important would you say having a sense of, of a challenge is? Not so much that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to climb this, which I probably can do, but I'm going to climb this in this many days, which is going to be tough, or I'm going to climb this, which is higher than I've ever done. How important would you say that sense of challenge is? You know, for me, if I'm going to be solo, it, it's really big. Um, if I'm with other people, you know, I've got to take into consideration their abilities as well. And so somewhere it's a happy medium between what I would do and what the people can do that are with me. Mm. And, you know, my wife's an adventure, but I could tell you clearly there are places she's not going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just have a good time, buddy. Not without me. <laughs> I see you go I'll- by yourself then. I'll uh, be here to talk about it when you get back. <laughs> nice. Well, that is a pretty understanding wife you got there, man. That's awesome. I do. Yeah, she is. But she knows her limits. Uh, and uh, I've taken her some places that uh, are th- – those are other stories, let me tell you. But I would never get her back there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like that. I'm so intrigued about the stories from those places. <laughs> That's great. So, man, how are you like um, – how are you putting this sense of – adventure and all your gigantic set of skills when it comes to it how are you putting it into or are you putting it into practice Uh, you know apart from adventuring yourself are you running anything where you're living are you teaching the the new generation something like that yes 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 one of my passions is uh, helping parents uh, raise their boys to to be men so i have a son and when my son was 13 he and i uh, set a record and uh, we climbed 28 mountains in 150 days. Uh, climbed something like 65,000 vertical feet and hiked like 165 miles. And he was 13. And I uh, wrote a book about that. And in fact, that book will be published here in October. And uh, it's called Leading the Way. Awesome. And it's how to you know, build character qualities in your son's life using real life experiences. Mm. And adventure gives you tremendous opportunities to do things that will build character in you, like suffering, perseverance, preparation, fear, you know, you know, all those things come into play in adventure. Absolutely, man. I think to uh, to maybe a lesser scale, depending on how you do it, I think they also come into when it comes into travel itself and uh, not just adventure travel, but putting yourself out there and having, like you say, that fear and the things that do go wrong. And then you have some, some terrible days where everything goes wrong, but you suffer mm-hmm, through mm-hmm. it and you learn how to deal with it. And again, learning how to go over the roadblocks and bribing the police officer. And I think these things, they all come to build you as a person. This seems to be something that comes up on the show a lot, how travel and adventure builds you as a person it builds your builds your mind your capabilities of of facing life whatever life you're currently living what you've done in the past and the suffering that you've had in the past kind of helps you with that life now you know absolutely i, I couldn't agree more because in adventure all your senses are on point you you have 
you just can't, uh, you can relax, but you are aware, hyper aware of everything because it, it could have a direct impact on your, you know, whether you're going to pull that off or not. Mm. Um, gosh, I have, uh, stories after stories after stories where, you know, you've had to outthink something, come up with a creative solution, and then that translates back into everyday life. Absolutely, man. And like you say, it comes with the with the planning as well. Once you know, or not know, because you can never know what's going to happen. But once you have an idea of what could happen, you can plan for if it does happen. For example, like the other, um, the other well, last week, I'm recording this just after I come back from Brazil. But last week, I was living in uh, in a favela in Rio. Uh, well, in mm-hmm. Niteroi, which is just a ferry away from Rio. And, and it was, it's one of those times where you want to go, yeah, I wasn't scared. But man, I was pretty scared like so at nighttime it gets really gets really weird really tense and all you can hear outside your window outside your door is these big motorbikes coming past you can hear gunshots and you know that if Mm. all you do is just lock the door lock the window turn the lights off and make a plan you know for what could happen (laughs) that's exactly it and these type of things the planning is so important to it because you know if I didn't plan if I didn't know where I was if I didn't research what I was doing much like an adventure if I hadn't have done that research before then i'd have been there with the lights on with the door unlocked waiting there (laughs) you know what i mean that's a great example yeah like the only white guy just waiting (laughs) but that's it man planning is everything (laughs) oh man this has been uh it's been a lot of fun man i could chat to you all night honestly man i could chat to you all night but we do have to wrap this up now there's two things that i would really really like to happen number one I want you to come back on the show because I know you've got about a billion stories that you can share. Oh, I, I got more stories than you got time, buddy. <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> so, number one, I'd like you to come back. Number two, we've got to have your son on to tell some adventures to you. Oh, you, well, you can get him. He, he's a, he'll tell you stories. Oh, oh yeah. Awesome. So he's, he's 30 now. So he's a dad and he's got a son. So Oh, brilliant. We could, we could do the whole three generations. We could keep, keep the podcast going a fair few years and get oh. the three generations. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, oh, I could, uh, I'll, uh, connect with him and then, uh, have him connect with you. And, uh, you know, he's the, he's uh, currently living in Japan. And, uh, but, uh, boy, he has stories to tell. Uh, in fact, um, the, f- I wrote, uh, a book earlier, Two Journeys to Manhood is the first book that I wrote. And my son, uh, wrote the foreword to that book because it was a story about him going from a little boy to a man. It was very compelling to see him. Okay, I'm a man now. Let me see. Let me write about this. Brilliant. So was that called uh, Two Journeys to Manhood, was it? Two Journeys to Manhood. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. So what we'll do is we'll have that linked up in the show notes. Uh, you can buy it online, I assume. Yes, yes, yes. Cool. So what we'll do is we'll have that linked up in the show notes. And come the end of October, we'll also get the Leading the Way, the the book that's coming out in October, you said? We'll get yep. that linked up I'll, in I the show I can send notes. you a link on that too. That should be on Amazon in October. Brilliant. So if you're listening to this after October, head to the show notes. You can find both of those books and give them a good old read. So is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with? Anything, uh, anything you got going on? Yes, I have a, a podcast that, that um, I've been doing now for almost a year. It's called uh, 936 Weeks to Manhood, which focuses uh, preparing boys uh, to be men. And a subset to that is I've begun telling some stories, personal stories. And the story that I just told last week, which you could find online, is how to outrun a hippopotamus, which is a, a true story. All of the stories that I tell are 
true. <laughs> so that's how they could find me. Nice, man. I've got to go check that out. I've got to go check that out. <laughs> Mate, thanks again for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was fun for me too, man. Thanks for letting <laughs> me do this. Awesome. No problem at all. It's been great speaking to you. You have a good one, man. Don't forget to send in your questions for the end of season Q&A. Search on Facebook, Travel Stories Podcast. Head to TravelStoriesPodcast.com or email me, Hayden, at TravelStoriesPodcast.com. H-A-Y-D-E-N. Catch you later, guys. Thanks for listening to the Travel Stories Podcast. Get in touch with Hayden on Twitter at Travel Stories UK or online at TravelStoriesPodcast.com where you can find all of the show notes and resources. Subscribe to the show to join us next time for another immersive, inspiring and international travel story on the Travel Stories Podcast.